In 2011, Annette Nagesa was one of the most promising young runners in Uganda. Her emergence onto the world scene has given sports fans in Uganda hope that their country could have another female success story. As the 2012 Olympics approached, Annette set a new Ugandan record in the 800. But before she could compete in London, Annette's career was derailed because of high testosterone levels. And if this sounds like a story about performance-enhancing drugs, it's definitely not. This is high testosterone, which is naturally occurring high testosterone. This is how they are born. Annette is not alone. Five female middle distance runners were banned from participating in the Tokyo Olympics for the same reason. Three of them had been Olympic medal winners in Rio. From Foreign Policy and Doha Debates, this is The Long Game, a podcast about the power of sports to change the world. I'm your host, Ibtihaj Mohammed. Fear and shame have kept many athletes from speaking out about the guidelines affecting women with naturally high testosterone. But after seven years of silence and isolation, Annette Nagesa found her voice. Sheba Joseph has the story. Running was just like my life. This is Annette Nagesa. She grew up in a small village in Uganda. She started running when she was in grade four. By the time she was in grade six, Annette was running against older kids. And she realized that not only did she love running, she was good at it, really good. By that time I was so small, I was too tiny. And I was running with the big people. People started taking notice. Annette received a scholarship to attend King of Kings Boarding School, which is a huge deal in Uganda, where four out of five girls don't get to attend high school at all. So there was no need of telling me that to go for training. I was telling myself to go for training because I knew it's, this is now my life. When she was just 19 years old, a documentary film crew visited Anna at her school. The remarkable thing about Annette's success to date is that she's achieved it without a regular coach or structured training program. A huge natural talent, she's nearing the end of her education and is looking forward to committing completely to the sport. Annette spoke through a translator. Whatever happens, I know that I will be training every hour I can for the Olympics next year. Everything I'm doing now will help me be ready for London. I just hope I continue to get faster so I can go to the Olympic Games as an athlete to fear. In 2011, Annette was named Uganda's Athlete of the Year. And in May 2012, Annette won a bronze medal at a meet in the Netherlands. That result qualified her for the London Olympics. But only a few weeks before flying out to London, Annette received a phone call that changed everything. My manager told me, you know what, you can't be allowed to go for that competition. Annette's manager told her that blood tests showed high levels of testosterone. Because of that, she wouldn't be allowed to compete at the London Olympics. Annette was devastated and confused. She wasn't being accused of taking performance-enhancing drugs. She was being told that the natural levels of testosterone in her blood were too high. Since the 1940s, women have had to prove that they were women, 
just so they could compete. First, they were asked to provide identity cards called Certificates of Femininity. Later, women were subjected to nude parades, where a panel of mainly white male judges would decide whether they belonged in the women's category. As you can imagine, there was a great deal of objection to this, right? Degrading, dehumanizing to women, objectifying. That's Katrina Kirkasis. She's a bioethicist and cultural anthropologist at Amherst College. And so they quickly got rid of that, moved to the karyotyping where you test for someone's chromosomes, then moved to genetic testing. But no matter what tests they use, there was always a problem. The problem is not with the tests themselves. They accurately test for whatever it is that one is testing for. The problem was the underlying idea that any singular physiological trait was enough to classify someone as male or female, so that you could rely on chromosomes alone or a particular gene or genitalia alone to classify. And what clinicians knew at that point and were troubled by is that this would always unfairly exclude some women. We all have a range of sex traits. There are at least six and actually more closer to nine. None of them are binary and they vary between individuals. And so the idea was that you couldn't do this fairly. So in the late 1990s, the International Olympic Committee, or IOC, decided they would no longer have mandatory testing of all women. But they left themselves a carve-out. They had a reserve clause which said that if they deemed a woman suspicious, they could test her. And that's what happened to Anna. Blood samples were taken at the IAAF World Championships in South Korea in August of 2011. But Anna wasn't told about her high testosterone levels until July of the following year, after she qualified for the Olympics. If the Federation had the samples from August 2011, why did they wait that long before contacting Hammett? Is it just then to stop her from competing in a big tournament uh, like the Olympics. That's athletes' rights activist and scholar Peyoshne Mitra. For over a decade, she has worked with female athletes with naturally high testosterone. So you see what the Federation is focused on. The Federation is focused on the podium. It's about stopping athletes from getting to that podium. And the Olympics podium, obviously, the most important one. We asked the Federation why there was a delay between Annette's samples being taken in August of 2011 and the investigation that began in June of 2012. But they did not directly answer our question. Castor Semenya is probably the most famous runner to be caught up in these regulations. She burst onto the scene at the 2009 World Championships in Berlin. Castor was the hot favorite. So she was this up-and-coming junior athlete. That's Madeline Pate. She represented Australia in the 800 meters at the 2008 Olympics and was expected to do well in Berlin. So we knew that there was this, this superstar young athlete coming in who was a favorite for the, for the medal. But beyond that, I didn't hear anything else being said about her, just that, that she was exceptional, you know. So I was intimidated when I drew the same heat. Madeline remembers seeing Castor on the warm-up track before the race. Semenya has made no 
secret of presenting herself in kind of a tomboy, uh, non-conforming sort of way. So certainly I saw that, but it didn't raise red flags for me. So the race happened. I raced poorly. Uh, I was really, really disappointed with how I with how I ran because I knew I was in good enough shape to make the semi-finals. But soon, rumors started to swirl about the young runner from South Africa. Uh, perhaps she had an unfair advantage relative to other athletes in the female category. Perhaps her body actually was different to other women, and she she didn't really fit in the female category. Uh, and I remember, in some ways thinking, oh, okay, well, you put two and two together and it makes sense, right? The Federation then called the IAAF, but now known as World Athletics, announced that they were going to conduct an investigation into Castor's biological makeup. I mean, they publicly declared this. So you can imagine the kind of reception that Semenya had when she won gold. Uh, I mean, it wasn't that you could hear a pin drop, but it was a really muted reaction in that stadium. I, and I think people were just kind of confused. As uh, this uh, athlete goes on a lap of honour, 155.45, smashing the national record, of course. An amazing performance. We'll be hearing a lot more of that, no doubt. I didn't really know... How to react? Like, do we celebrate this athlete? Do we, what What do we make of this situation? You know, I mean, World Athletics certainly um, threw Semenya under the bus by making that announcement the night before the final. For the longest time, athletes with high testosterone were told that they were cheaters. They were made to feel as if they were cheating, but they have never Doped. That's athletes' rights activist Payoshni Mitra again. This has happened over and over again that athletes have been made to feel inadequate. Athletes have been made to feel that they have been cheating the system, which is not true. Many of these athletes have what's called differences in sex development, which cause their bodies to produce unusually high levels of testosterone, or high T. This is high testosterone, which is naturally occurring high testosterone. So there is nothing to hide about it. There is nothing to be ashamed about it. This is how they are born. Some of these athletes now identify as intersex. Many do not. But they all have one thing in common. All of these women are assigned female sex at birth, brought up as girls, identify as women all their lives. When Anna Negesa's manager called a few weeks before London, He told her the doctors from the Federation asked her to go to France for additional testing to keep her Olympic dreams alive. She was alone in a lot of her travel to these various visits. Bioethicist Katrina Kirkasis again. She had very little that had been explained to her either by the doctors in her country, which was Uganda, or by the doctors who performed some of the investigations, which were the IAAF-affiliated physicians in Nice. Anna doesn't speak French, and she says she didn't really understand what the doctors were telling her. They said, you, you need to get medication. We need to lower your, your testosterone levels. 
According to the Federation's own records, the IAAF's then-medical manager officially informed Annette of her ineligibility on July 27, 2012. But Annette was told that she could reapply after undergoing medical treatment to lower her testosterone levels. With Annette's permission, the Federation forwarded her medical records from the examination in Nice to a doctor they recommended in Kampala, Uganda. Annette returned home and waited to undergo treatment. I had no one decision of doing what they wanted because I love the sport. A few months later, in November, Annette was taken to a hospital in Kampala. She thought she had agreed to a simple procedure, like an injection of medicine. But after waking up in pain and with scars under her belly, she realized something drastically different had happened to her. Annette would later learn that she had been born with internal testes. She had received a gonadectomy, an irreversible procedure that completely altered her body. In their email to us, the Federation says they did not recommend a specific course of treatment, and the doctor who performed the surgery has not commented publicly. But Annette's medical records indicate he was waiting for further guidance from the Federation before starting Annette on hormone therapy. You're listening to The Long Game from Foreign Policy and Doha Debates. I'm your host, Ibtihaj Mohammed. And now back to our story about Ugandan runner Annette Nagesa. Annette tried to go back to the life she had before surgery, attending classes at university. But terrible headaches forced her to return home instead. Her joints ached and her body felt weak. She didn't know how to explain to her mother what had happened to her. Annette received no follow-up therapy or treatment after the surgery. She was neglected and alone. When you lower testosterone, whether it's pharmacologically or surgically, it has a range of physiological effects. That's bioethicist Katrina Carcasis again. So it messes with the endocrine system, which is constantly trying to stay in a kind of harmonious balance. It can affect mood. It can mess with liver metabolism. It can create fatigue. And all of these are devastating for an elite athlete. And with Annette, she experienced incredible fatigue and nausea, and she didn't understand why. Because, again, no one had explained to her that it was important to have hormone supplementation afterwards just for simple daily living, let alone anything else. A few months after her surgery, Annette attempted to return to her sport and train again. She was in so much pain, and she wasn't able to regain her prior fitness levels. In the years immediately following Annette's surgery, India's Duti Chand and South Africa's Castor Semenya fought against regulations that required them to lower their natural testosterone levels in order to compete. They took their cases to court and won for a while. In 2016, Castor won her second consecutive Olympic gold medal in the women's 800 meters. And Castor Semenya is going to do what most people thought she would do in the 800, and she runs away and wins it brilliantly. Castor was joined on the podium by Francine Nyonsaba from Burundi and Margaret Wambui from Kenya. Three years later, World Athletics banned women whose testosterone exceeded the limit from racing in middle-distance events, which included the 400 meters to the mile. As a result, five athletes were banned from competing in the Tokyo Olympics, including 
all three of the 800-meter medal winners from Rio. Running was not only Annette's passion. For her, running meant so much more. One of the things I think that people from the global north um, may not be familiar with is the extent to which sport is a route to economic betterment in the global south. Athletes all over the world use sport as a pathway to a better life. But major events pay appearance fees to elite runners, and that money can go far in a place like Uganda, where the cost of living is low. Long before she even qualified for the Olympics, Annette was earning enough money to support her entire family. One needn't have incredible prize money in order to really have a tremendous impact on their own life and that of their family. Annette lost her university scholarship. But that wasn't all she lost. She lost the support of her country, she lost her community of fellow athletes, and she struggled to find a job. People were questioning whether she was a woman or a man, which felt incredibly discouraging for her. They were seeing me like an abnormal person, like if you go looking for the job. So it was really, really hard. For seven years, Annette was alone and sick. She wasn't receiving the medical care required after the surgery. She was isolated, thinking she was the only person who was like this. I didn't have anyone to talk to, even my parents, no one. Athletes' rights activist Peyoshni Mitra tries to reach out whenever she hears about a female athlete who has been flagged for naturally high testosterone levels. But she has to know about them first. Castor Semenya's story made international headlines, but many high-T athletes like Anna simply disappear. Their medical records are shielded behind confidentiality rules. So I could never reach out to Anna at the time when she probably needed me the most. But Peyoshni wonders, who are those rules actually protecting? The federations can investigate, make these athletes undergo medical assessment, extremely invasive medical assessments. And after that, what happens to this woman? She disappears, you know, as far as the federation is concerned. She doesn't really disappear. What is disappearing is the fact that the federation has caused such harm. So the confidentiality clause was protecting the Federation for seven years, not Annette. Seven years after her surgery, Annette was still struggling. She had managed to find a few odd jobs, painting houses, building a cow shed. She was barely making any money. That's when another athlete introduced Annette Nagesa to Peyoshni Mitra. The two started talking. And then eventually I got a chance to go and meet her. She broke down several times because that was the first time she was talking about it. Peyoshni helped Anna understand she has nothing to hide. She's the lady who gave me courage and strength. With that courage and strength, Anna decided to share her story for the first time in 2019. She spoke to a team of German documentary filmmakers. Diese Bilder zeigen nicht Lara, sondern Annette Negesa. It wasn't the first time a female athlete spoke out about having high tea. Duthi Chand and Castor Semenya were already speaking and, you know, quite famous. And a lot of people got to know about them and their struggle and their resistance. And it adds to that story because both of them uh, got enough support at the right time 
so that they could resist severe kind of medical steps. In June of 2013, a clinical study revealed that four women athletes had undergone irreversible medical surgeries to reduce their testosterone levels, but their names were not made public. We didn't know any athlete before who said, well, I went through that. I went through all of that. So that was extremely important because Annette came out and spoke about how harmful these regulations are. Piyoshni calls Annette a whistleblower. She says Annette helped focus the attention away from the bodies of female athletes and onto the actions of the Federation. What we are doing today is scrutinizing the organization and what they did. So we are reversing that scrutiny today. And that is possible because Annette has openly spoken about what she went through in 2012. Slowly, over time, attitudes toward athletes with high T are changing. Remember Madeline Pape, the Australian runner who lost to Castor Semenya at the 2009 World Championships in Berlin? Madeline retired from running and earned a PhD in sociology. She's now a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Lausanne in Switzerland, where she studies gender equity in sport. Madeline has a deep admiration for Annette's decision to come forward. It's clear when Annette talks that people really stop and listen because for a long time this issue has been underground and we haven't actually had the opportunity to hear firsthand, you know, the voices of the women who've been affected. And it's not Annette's job to do this. I think it's actually a really, really big burden for her to have to teach us about the the kinds of effects that these regulations have have had on her body and on her life. I have so much admiration for, for her stepping up and being prepared to put herself forward in in that way and claim that and say, yes, I am someone who has testosterone above the limit and, yes, I have had my life turned upside down by these regulations. That's a really, really brave, really, really brave decision to make and I just wish that she didn't have to do that in order for us to better appreciate how these rules affect people's lives. In November of 2021, the IOC issued a new framework for inclusion and non-discrimination on the basis of gender identity and differences in sex development. Annette and more than 250 athletes and activists worked with the IOC to develop it. But while the framework was seen as a cause for hope among athletes like Annette, World Athletics President Seb Coe told reporters that the Federation sees no need to alter its regulations in order to comply. Look, I'm, I read the, the framework document. Um, it's very much in alignment with everything that we believe very strongly uh, in the principle of, of, of fair, uh, fair play, open competition. Look, the broader point I need to make here is that our regulations will remain in place. And so, Anna continues using her voice to bring change to the system. She hopes that in sharing her story, she can prevent another female athlete from undergoing an irreversible surgery like the one she had. There are very many other athletes who are like me. I don't want them also to go such situation which I went through. 
That's one of the reasons why I came out and talked about it. An athlete's rights activist, Payoshni Mitra, says not all of Anit's efforts are visible. She does a lot of uh, work behind the scenes. Whenever Payoshni meets other women facing pressure to permanently alter their bodies to comply with the regulations, she offers to put them in touch with Anna. This is such a personal, physical situation that they were dealing with, such a personal thing. And they were always told that you have to not talk about it, hide it, pretend you have an injury, etc. But then if as another athlete comes and tells them, well, I was in the same position as you were, it's really helpful. And Anna does that a lot for me. She speaks to them individually and she stays in touch. She asks me later, how is she doing? Or she messages them on WhatsApp. So there is that ongoing kind of um, willingness to provide support to these young athletes. She knows that she did not get it herself, but she's so dedicated and she doesn't want this to happen to anyone else. And that's so important. That's a true activist. We asked Anna what she hopes people will take away from her story and what changes she hopes to see for high tea athletes in the future. What I can say about that is like, let them take the people as they were, as they were born, as they were created. You are not God. God is the one that who created that person. And even the mom who produced that kid, she didn't know that she's producing such a kind of kid except only the Almighty who knows what He creates. So let them take us as we are. Annette is now receiving the medical care she needs and has even returned to her training in hopes of pursuing her Olympic goal. After all she's endured, Annette is rewriting her story to be one of strength, perseverance, and confidence. I'm Nexa Annette from Uganda. 800 meters, uh, African champion 2011, and uh, I'm who I am, and I'm proud of myself. That's it for this episode of The Long Game. I'm your host, Ibtihaj Mohammed. The Long Game is a co-production of Foreign Policy and Doha Debates. This episode was produced by Sheba Joseph and Karen Given, with help from Kim Baikama, Joe Hawthorne, Dan Efron, Rob Sachs, Jafit Weeks, Amjad Atala, and Jigar Mehta. To hear more about Annette, check out Out There, an award-winning podcast that explores big questions through intimate stories outdoors. Annette is featured in an episode that dropped on November 18th called In the Name of Fairness. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. Make sure to follow us on Apple or your favorite podcast app. And please leave us a review. To learn more, subscribe to Foreign Policy, a global magazine of news and ideas, or visit Doha Debates, a production of Qatar Foundation. Next week on the podcast, since becoming an environmental activist, American football player Ovi Mihaly has been invited to a lot of lectures, conferences, and fundraising events. He's often the only black person in the room. We have a global problem. We need a global solution. And I wanted to bring more people who look like me who are dealing with the negative effects of the environment, climate change, global warming, the whole thing. I wanted them to be part of the solution. That's next week on The Long Game.